Good morning. Hear the word of the Lord to us today from Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway will be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm going to tell you something you may not know. That is that the world is kind of a mess right now. Oh, you knew that? Oh. Let me just highlight a few things, right? There are conflicts in many places in the world. The United States is gradually getting more entrenched in wars in Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and Afghanistan with no sign of resolution. The world's conflicts have led to one of the greatest refugee crises in all of history, with over 60 million people displaced from their homes. There is a famine crisis unfolding in Africa, especially in Somalia, South Sudan, Nigeria, also in Yemen. Mankind is incredibly creative and has created things like the Internet, which can be a great source for good. (laughs) And yet we have hackers and trolls and sexual predators, and cyber bullies, and cyber criminals, and others who use it for harm. In fact, everything that man does 
Whatever he creates gets corrupted by sinful man. Every day we hear or read about more arrests, shootings, murders. Did I say that the world is a mess? (laughs) Uh, That's just part of it, right? So here's the question for us this morning. How do we, as the people of God, stay faithful in such a world? How do we not lose heart when evil seems to be winning and righteousness losing? Every one of us in this room is living out our personal stories in this world. So how can we keep going with God? In the book of Isaiah, where we are now in chapters 34 and 35, Judah has been told that they need to persevere because life is not going to be that easy. Even as we saw last week, if you want the abundant life, you have to persevere through the fire. And they've also been told that they will eventually end up in exile in, under a cruel Babylonian kingdom. God knows we struggle to stay faithful in difficult times, so he gives us exactly what we need to hang in there and persevere. And what does he give Israel and to us in our passage today? The end of the story. The end of the story. Now, I know some of you read books and you just can't wait to get there, right? You have to read the end first and then you... Well, we get to hear the end of the story today. In chapters 34 and 35, Isaiah looks into the future. He looks far into the future and gives Judah the end of history, the end of the story to keep them from losing heart. When you're on a hike and you, you're going through tough territory, as long as you know your destination and you realize where you're headed, that beautiful lake with the nice camping area, place to fish and relax, then you can keep going through some pretty difficult terrain. If you don't know where you're going, then it's easier to lose heart. And so he gives us the end goal, the end of the story, so that we can keep going in the midst of the life that we are walking in today. So what is the end of the story that we need to know to keep going? We'll see that today in chapters 34 and 35. Let's pray as we begin. Thank you, Lord, that in this world that is crazy and that evil often does seem to be winning, we know that you are sovereign, that you are Lord of all, that nothing happens outside of your ultimate control. But thank you, Lord, for this passage that gives us what we have to look forward to, the end of the story. May you use it to encourage us to be faithful as we walk this path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the end of the story. What is the end of the story? Well, pretty simple. Chapter 34. God will defeat evil. God will defeat evil. Let me read verses 1 through 3. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations. And furious against all their hosts, he has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Pretty graphic. 
What does God want us to know about this final defeat of evil? Number one, I think in these verses that this defeat of evil will encompass all peoples. Everyone who has not bent the knee to Jesus. Notice how he begins. All nations, all peoples, all the world, all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all nations. No one will be exempt who has refused to submit to God. The end of the story when evil is defeated, when God finally deals with evil, the world is utterly devoted to destruction and their judgment will be complete. It's not popular to talk about a final judgment these days, is it? But it's very clear in Scripture. Sound harsh? (laughs) Well, you need to understand the biblical perspective that God is simply giving people what they have chosen. They want life without him. They will get life without him. Mankind has chosen rebellion. And so mankind gets what they've chosen. Many today in our world think, well, even if there is a God, God isn't doing anything about evil in the world right now. So he apparently doesn't care. Well, let me say a couple things about that. Number one, If God were not restraining evil every moment, every second in your life, in my life, and all around us, this world would implode. He is constantly holding back the forces of evil. Yes, he allows some of it to happen, but he's holding it back. But secondly, God is holy and he hates evil because of how it destroys his good creation. But he is also very patient He's giving mankind every opportunity to repent. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2, where he says this, starting in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is being patient, holding back, giving everybody an opportunity to repent. But if they don't, this judgment, this defeat of evil will encompass all peoples. Secondly, it will encompass all places, all places. Verse 4 and 5. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Notice how the judgment begins in heaven. And those who have rebelled in heaven will be the first to be judged. And then the judgment, the defeat of evil, descends, he says, to Edom. Now, Edom here in this passage is simply a, an example for all mankind. It's clear he's talking about the judgment of all. He simply picks Edom as one of the enemies of Israel. But he's talking about judgment on all. But notice how it begins. The sword will be satiated in heaven. The forces of evil arrayed against God everywhere in heaven and on earth will be defeated. Satan and his demons will be judged first. 
And then God will move the judgment to earth. Thus, all evil in the universe will be eradicated. It's very interesting as you think about Revelation and the judgment that's described there. Remember the huge battle of Armageddon. And you think about that as some huge battle, the forces of evil arrayed against God. Listen to what actually happens in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, Jesus. And what happens? And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This huge battle, it's dealt with in two quick verses. God defeats evil. It's not a battle at all. It's a judgment. It will encompass all places, heaven and earth. Third, what we need to know about this defeat of evil is it will set the universe right. It will set the universe right. Verses 6 through 8. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. You see, right now, due to the sinfulness of mankind, of all of us, the universe is wobbling. <laughs> it's unsteady. It's off course. I tore my ACL a couple of weeks ago, and I'm a little wobbly these days. That's what happens with sin, something you can't even see that's causing wobble and difficulty. The universe is wobbling, and so this passage where it says God is going to judge, notice it's sacrificial language about the lambs and the goats and the oxen. What he's saying is this. Sin must be dealt with through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood. And here's the bottom line for every human being. Either we trust in the blood of Jesus or our own blood will be spilt to atone for our sin. Jesus died to spare us from judgment. If we trust in his blood, we do not have to go under God's judgment for sin but if we refuse to submit to him, we must atone for our own sin. And notice verse 8 where it says the vengeance of God. A lot of us don't like that word, do we? Vengeance. We, we don't like the, attributing that to God. Well, that's because God's vengeance is not like ours. And we've all watched revenge movies, right? You know, and there's something emotionally satisfying. Somebody gets harmed in some great way. And in the movie, they take revenge and they get them back. And there's something emotionally satisfying about that. We do want justice and it's okay to want justice. But that's not how God responds. God is not about revenge. That's not what this vengeance word means in the scriptures. God's vengeance is 
about reestablishing a social and judicial balance in the universe. The universe is out of balance because of sin, and so he's got to eradicate evil to restore the balance. I like the way John Stott puts it. God's vengeance or his wrath is neither spite nor malice nor animosity nor revenge. It's never arbitrary since it's the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable. It is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. Further, it's not the impersonal outworking of retribution in society, some inevitable process somehow. So what is his wrath? It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Further, and this is very important, his wrath is not incompatible with his love. You see, God must deal with evil because he would not be true to himself as a God of justice and righteousness and love, giving us what we've chosen, if he did not defeat evil, if he did not, if he let sin go unpunished. It's okay for us to want justice when we've been harmed or when you see harm in the world. It's okay to want justice, but it As we see in Romans 12, it's never okay to take vengeance in our own hands. We let God deal with the evil in the world because only he can do it in a righteous way. We cannot. So God's defeat of evil will set the universe right and restore a proper balance, take out the wobble in this universe by finally and ultimately defeating evil. But fourth, this defeat of evil will be eternal, will be eternal. Eternal. Verse 9 and 10. And the streams of Edom will be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. And her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall ever pass through it forever and ever. How long is that? Forever. Judgment is eternal. This is burning pitch. I used to be a firefighter and we would sometimes be called out on just uh, a lightning strike that hit a tree and you'd put the wood out, but the pitch in the tree would keep burning sometimes for days. And you'd have to stay and watch it. And that's the picture he's giving here. Sometimes the wood's gone, but the pitch just keeps burning and burning and burning. That's the idea of this eternal fire that goes on and on. And on, it will be eternal. I think this should give us a sense of urgency, brothers and sisters. There are no second chances. We need to share the gospel. Don't let those around you go to judgment without hearing the gospel. Plead with them to receive Christ, to trust in his blood to cover over their sin, because the fire will be eternal. And then finally, fifth, this defeat of evil will reverse creation. Reverse creation. Verse 11. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Let me stop there for a moment. 
There's two words in there that you don't really see in the English, the word confusion and the word emptiness. Tohu vibohu. Those are the words that came right out of the creation. When the world was formless and void in Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. But what God is saying is that when judgment comes on the earth, it will be reversal of creation back to chaos, back to being formless and void. And then it goes on to say that it's noble. uh, Verse uh, 13, thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. I think the picture he's given here is all the fortresses of man, all that he's been able to produce in the world and all the greatness of man, all the wonderful things he's been able to do. He's trying to picture for them, imagine that being completely devastated. And so he imagines the fortresses of man being empty, except for jackals, overgrown, broken down. All that man produces will be nothing. It will be a reversal of creation. It's a picture of utter devastation. The end of the story, evil will be judged. And brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Christ, that is great news. (laughs) That evil will not go on. That it will be defeated completely, eternally, once for all. God will judge it. And it will be gone. And that will be terrific because don't you ache for the evil in the world to be gone? For God to intervene, he will. The end of the story is he will. But that's not the whole end of the story, is it? Chapter 35 says, yes, he will defeat evil, but he will renew creation. Chapter 35. 35. Creation will be restored. Look at the beginning of chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Here's, here's just a picture of a desert now turned into beauty, garden, glory. You see, God will restore creation, blossoming beauty. And notice how many words, just go through those first couple of verses and see how many words there are for joy, gladness. And notice how it ends. God's glory will be revealed. They'll see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. You see, the great song of creation will be sung, that creation will be restored with no sin. Can you imagine living in a world with no sin and the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the Lord shining all around, the beauty of what God has for us? It will be amazing. But not only in this restored creation will creation itself be made new and a garden and beautiful, but man will be restored. Broken man will be restored. That's the picture in 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute, he says, will all 
be healed. In this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the restored creation, all our physical struggles will be dealt with, will be healed. We will have new bodies in the new creation. They'll be recognizable, but able to live in this new world, in this new creation. I like the way C.S. Lewis describes it in The Last Battle in the Narnia Tales, where he says this, He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him, not only the dogs and the humans, but even fat little Puzzle and short-legged Poggin the Dwarf. <laughs> the air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. They go on to run up a waterfall and on and on. It's a picture of incredible beauty of absolute physical restoration and healing where we'll have new bodies that will be able to do amazing things, never tired, and everything more real than on earth. But I think this physical restoration, the lame, the blind, etc., is also a picture of emotional, psychological, and spiritual healing as well. That in this new restored creation, the struggling, the depressed, the lonely, the lame, of soul, the blind of heart, the lonely, the grieving, all will be made new and whole in this new creation. As we're told in Revelation chapter 21, the very end, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, the end of the story is that we will finally be everything God created us to be with no restrictions like sin has laid upon us. With our unique personalities, our gifts, we'll still have all those, we'll still be us, and yet in this new creation, we'll be everything we were created to be. Won't that be awesome? Amen? Oh. And then finally, this restoration of creation, we will finally be home. Finally be home. Verse 8, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they're fools, they won't go astray. Isn't that good news? You can't get lost on this highway. You don't need GPS. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. That's us. And come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We'll finally be home. Secure and unafraid. Full of joy. And we will know God intimately because we shall see Him face to face. And let me suggest to you that I think we'll know God more intimately than Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Because we will know God as our Redeemer, as our Savior. We will know His grace and mercy in ways that Adam and Eve never could because we're recipients of His redemption. The last battle again. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. 
He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Bree, come further up. Come further in. We will be home at last. What a glorious picture, I think, of where we'll be in this restored new heavens and new earth where we will be restored and creation will be restored and we'll be home at last and the glory of the Lord will be shining everywhere. Isn't this a wonderful picture? So my question for every one of us today is what will be the end of your story? Are you confident it won't be chapter 34, but that it will truly be chapter 35? If you're not sure, make sure you talk to somebody who can help talk you and pray you through it. There's no time like the present to deal with your eternity. So God gives us the end of the story, so we'll stay on the path with God. We'll stay with him. Evil will finally fully be judged and creation will be renewed and we will finally be right. (laughs) So what are some implications then for us today as we're walking the path of life and we've got to live in this world that's still a mess? What are some implications for us today? I want to give you four. Number one, Stay hopeful. I skipped two verses when I went back through chapter 35. I want to read three and four. Because I think this is his point for us as far as application. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. See, this is the ultimate point of all of this for Judah and for us. Don't be afraid. (laughs) What you are experiencing today as you seek to persevere on the path of faithfulness with God is not the end of the story. The evil you see around you will be defeated. God will come with vengeance, with recompense. He will set all things right. Evil will finally be judged. And God will save you. If you put your faith in him, if you've trusted in the blood of Jesus, if you've given your heart to him, even if you struggle in life and you fall off the path sometimes and all, if you put your faith in him, you will be saved. So keep hopeful. Keep your eye on the prize, on the end of the path. Number one. Stay hopeful. Number two, encourage the struggling, because that's really what those verses say, right? Encourage the faint-hearted, the struggling. Encourage them to keep their eyes on God. Encourage them to hang in there. See, I think this is a really important encouragement for us because in our individualistic world in America, we think we should handle life on our own and be able to tough it out. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is we are in this together. We need each other to make it on this path. And there'll be times when you need others to bear you up. And there's times others need you to bear them up on this path. So let's encourage one another. And let others encourage you 
when you need it. We were never meant to walk this path alone. Third implication. If we are going to have a restored creation someday, then I think it's an incentive for us now to take care of creation now. We are to be good stewards of this creation because in some mysterious way, I believe, many believe, that what we do on earth and how we treat the earth now somehow gets carried over into the new creation. I don't know quite how that works. But let me just say, let's be good stewards. Let's be part of what God wants to do in recreating this earth. No matter what you feel about climate change or whatever, (laughs) let's be good stewards of this earth and make beauty wherever we go. Make beautiful gardens. (laughs) Bring beauty to people's lives. And then finally, fourth implication, live as citizens of God's future kingdom today. Live as citizens of God's future kingdom today. We are citizens of that kingdom already. So how do we do that? Focus on his glory, his sovereignty, grow in holiness, pour out your life to bring healing to people's lives now, encourage the faint-hearted, encourage one another, bring healing to others. I like the way in Acts chapter 3 where Peter did that as the early church is figuring what does it mean to walk with God now as a recreated people in the midst of a fallen world. And in chapter 3, Peter and John were going to the temple at the house at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So he saw Peter and John and he begged. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Wow. (laughs) Maybe you can't heal a man who's lame physically. Maybe you have that ability and gift. God has given it to people like Peter. But every one of us in this room can bring in the kingdom by pointing others to Jesus and giving them what we do have, which is the life of Christ and the message of the gospel that sets people free. People who need to be healed in their souls and their hearts who are living in this broken world and have no hope. We have hope. We know the end of the story. So let's live as citizens of that future kingdom and seek to do what we can to bring healing to this broken world. We know the end of the story and how glorious it will be. Finally, the end of the Narnia Tales, his last paragraph, C.S. Lewis says this. For us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. (laughs) Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever 
in which every chapter is better than the one before. (laughs) That's where we're headed, brothers and sisters. So let's continue to walk this journey with hope because we know the end of the story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not just leaving us in this path of trying to deal with a messy world without a vision for what you have for us in the future. May we keep this in mind. May we remember what you have for us so that we will walk this path with confidence and with hope, knowing, knowing that we have great joy ahead. So may we walk the highway of holiness even now and bring life and healing to those around us as we prepare for an eternity with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.